reading from Psalm 119. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. and I will not forget your word. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair, white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everybody. Wow, that was actually pretty good. That was pretty, pretty nice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and being with your church in worship. Thank you for the gift of your word, uh, even when it's sometimes very big. Uh, and I ask that you be with us and help us and um, proclaim yourself to us now. Amen. You can be seated. I know you jumped the gun there. I didn't say it yet. What if I had something coming? You might have had to stand. No. So for our sermons this summer, we're going to be following uh, the lectionary, uh, the New Testament readings, the lectionary, which is working its way through much of the book of Romans. I would personally say that I find Romans to be probably one of the hardest books in the New Testament. You know, why would we take it easy during the summer, right? Uh, really, though, I think these sermons will explore some really great things about the gospel that we all need to spend time in. I think you all be very blessed by it. And the difficulty of it just means in some way that our preachers, well, you know, we need to have something to do this summer. We don't want too much rest. So, as I've been considering a Romans passage this week, though, uh, gifts have been on my mind an awful lot. Uh, I hope you notice in this passage, right near the middle of that first paragraph there, surrounded by so many big words and concepts, is this simple central idea that this is all a gift to us. All that God has done through Jesus for us is a gift. So I was thinking about gifts that I've been given or gifts that I have given, just hoping for, you know, thinking a little bit about good gifts and what those are for us. But honestly, I'm not that good at giving gifts. And, and I felt like even the best gifts that I've been given are awfully small in comparison to what this passage is talking about today. But my wife was actually sharing something just randomly this week that happened that actually really struck me, something really big. Um, so one of my wife's employees, um, she has a sister with long-term health problems and it's been very complicated by type 1 diabetes, uh, and her kidneys were failing. 
Uh, so this employee had been prepared to donate one of her kidneys to her sister. It was not a challenge or a hard call for her at all. She was a match, she could help out, so she was gladly gonna give her kidney. They got very far in the process. It was just a few days before the surgery um, when the doctors realized that the health of this sister was um, much worse than they had known up to that point, or maybe it had taken kind of a turn, um, and a kidney transplant at that point wasn't gonna be meaningfully helpful. Um, she needed a new pancreas too. That was something that this employee uh, or sister couldn't give. That happened about a year ago, and that was actually just this week uh, that this lady was matched with a pancreas and a kidney, and she just had her transplant surgery like two days ago. Uh, for her and her whole family, that was such a big, great gift. But it's a gift that came with a great cost, because pancreases can only be given when someone else has died. So there's one family that is mourning that great loss, and this other family is celebrating and rejoicing the gift of what will almost be new life, that gift given through death for life, that made me really start thinking about what we have going on in our passage today. It's so big and it's so amazing. But really, if we're going to understand Paul rightly today, even in those some similarities, it still can't really compare with what gift that we are given because of Christ. So look with me at our passage as we think about this gift of salvation, this gift given through Jesus for all who believe. It's at the very center of our passage today. We have to begin and end with it here. This gift is given because of and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it changes everything. For all who believe, it's the gift of life from death. This is the gospel, the free gift um, given us because of everything that Jesus has done. And really, the whole book of Romans is actually centered around exploring and explaining this gospel. I hope you notice the verses on the very front cover of your bulletin. Um, these verses are like Paul's thesis statement for the whole book. It's his simple summary of everything he's going to be dealing with here. Um, this little statement comes right at the end of his introductory remarks, and it transitions into really his whole discussion for the rest of the book. Paul says there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, honestly, to me, I find it just a little bit amusing that Paul describes his relationship with the gospel as, I'm not ashamed. I mean, certainly, that is very great, and it's a very good call for us to not be ashamed of the gospel in any way. But Paul is so obviously so much more than, like, not ashamed of the gospel, you know, he gave his whole life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's enamored with it. He is completely overwhelmed by these, this good news. And a passage that we have today, especially verses 21 to 25, this is Paul's very full, but way too short, um, summary of this amazing, life-changing good news that he spent his whole life proclaiming for us. However, before we fully get into these verses, we need to realize quickly here that though Paul really starts strongly with the gospel in chapter 1, our passage comes midway through chapter 3. This is when he finally actually defines and describes the gospel in a big way. And that's because between chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 21 here, Paul's actually been describing out our great need for help. He's been going through our foundational problem that we are, that all of humanity is, fully and completely given over to sin and death, with no hope of ever making our way back to life in God. This shared situation for all of humanity, it's actually summarized very famously right in verse 23 of our passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is in need. No one can be right or okay on our own. None of us can stand before God's great glory and goodness. Our passage today then is the turning point of that whole conversation 
Everyone is under sin. On our own, we have no hope. But God has acted. He has revealed his righteousness for us. And that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, it's actually one of the more complicated phrases in the New Testament, though I could say that about an awful lot of this first paragraph. Um, in church history, this phrase was actually um, really the turning point of the church throughout Europe at the start of the Reformation, as Martin Luther and then others worked on reclaiming the power of this importance of this idea. On its own, the righteousness of God has to do with just who God is. It means that he is just, that he is right and good. And a very core outworking of that in the Bible is that God is faithful to the promises he has made. He won't leave them unanswered or unfulfilled. So God's righteousness is tied up with God's actions to set humans and the whole world right. In our passage, Paul is kind of expanding on that. We see certainly that God's righteousness is not distant from us or only about him in some way. God's righteousness is something that is for us. Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for us all who believe. Paul is saying that God's righteousness has been manifested right in us. This means that we can be saved. We were lost under sin, could never find a way out. It is only by God's great work, by his righteousness at work in us through faith in Jesus that we find life. That's a really big idea. And Paul actually then works on to explore it more deeply in verses 24 and 25. In these verses, he's again using some really big words and important ideas um, to explain some of what it means that God has revealed his righteousness, um, what God's righteousness is doing for us. Paul says that we are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. These are three really important ideas. And actually, each of them corresponds in very important and interesting ways with the problems of sin that Paul spent more than two chapters um, laying out before this. So we need to dive into these to explore them a bit more. We're going to do it in reverse order, though. Paul presents them very nicely and poetically in a certain way that kind of actually ends up putting them um, backwards. If we were to go logically in the way that God would would work out salvation, it's the opposite way of this. So first, that means we're going to start with God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood. Now, propitiation is a hard word to say, especially repeatedly, um, but it's also a very central idea in the gospel, as Paul is explaining here. Um, It has to do with the removal of God's wrath because our sins have been dealt with. And this is a key concern. In chapter one, when Paul begins his description of just how lost humans are under sin, he starts with God's wrath. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. The whole discussion after that about our human sinfulness falls under this concern. God's wrath is revealed against all of our sins. He will and he must act against our sins. But that's a hard topic for us. It can be really hard to talk or think about the wrath of God. Maybe that's in part because we often think about people who we would describe as wrathful people who fly into a rage for no discernible reason, or can we say that our God is like that? That he is full of an unbridled rage or a simmering anger that just just hovers below the surface and explodes at a moment's notice? No, we can't say that, and we actually don't need to say anything like that about God. For me, the most important thing um, to make sense of God's wrath is to remember first who God is. God is the creator, and God is our Father. And as the creator, as the good creator, as the Bible is so clear to put it for us, he made all things good. 
God knows exactly how everything is meant to work. He made everything about wholeness and flourishing. The world was made to flourish. We are made to flourish within the world, to find wholeness in life and to flourish in our relationships with each other and with God. That's what our creator intended. And as our loving, loving heavenly father, God wants what is best for us. He wants us to find flourishing relationship with him. He wants us to have love, joy, and life in him that we live out in this world. But sin exists. Because of us, sin is in this world, and sin is against all the good works of God. Sin is against wholeness and flourishing. It's against right relationships. Sin leads to countless harms, brokennesses, and death. And our good creator and loving father, he should not be okay with sin. He should not be fine that we choose death over life or be comfortable with how his children abuse and kill each other. I love my three kids dearly, uh, but one of the most deep and, uh, deepest and upsetting things is how sometimes they can be so mean to each other, even cruel. And because I love them, I'm not okay with that behavior. Now, as kids, it's easy to say, well, you know, they're hungry, they're tired, but the behavior is still wrong. It can't continue. You know, I don't just say, it doesn't matter, they're just kids. God's wrath is God's not okay with sin. It is his very right, very good anger with all that is wrong and harmful. It's his constant displeasure with the ways that we hurt ourselves and other, the ways, the ways we turn our backs on him. God's wrath is God's deep rejection of our choice of death rather than life. God is the good creator. He's our loving father. And he actually can't truly be either of those things if he has no wrath against our sins. If God just said, oh, well, it's just people. They're small. They make mistakes. That's not good or loving. But because he loves us, because he wants what is best for us, he has to be against sin. He has wrath against our sins. Do notice here, very importantly, as Paul tells us about God's wrath, he tells us his wrath is against our sins, not us. Also, though, we fear wrath sometimes, I think, because wrath in our mind can feel so irregular or sudden. But God's wrath is not irregular, suddenly flaring up. It's constant. And it's not like our worst anger, uncontrollable and damaging to us. God is in full control of himself. He's not swayed by sudden outburst. He rightly feels a constant anger, displeasure, rejection of our sins and all of their consequences. So God's wrath is a good thing. It exists because of his love for us. But still, our sins run right up against God's wrath, and it separates us from him. God's wrath and our sins need to be addressed. So Paul says here, with I think a lot of excitement, that God puts forward Jesus who himself becomes our propitiation by his death. He is the sacrifice that puts away wrath. For all who believe Jesus' death is a death for our sins, the death that we've earned. And with our sins gone, the wrath of God against our sins is also removed. That is the start of what God does for us. Next, we look to the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. At the time that Paul is writing, redemption has to do with being freed through the payment of a price. Often it's about financial debt. If you had a great debt and you could not pay it, someone else could pay, and that would release you from the debt and its consequences. Or redemption was also about prisoners of war, the prisoners of war who were held and then only released once a payment had been made. For Paul, redemption is about our enslavement to sin. Again, if you go to Romans 1 and 2, Paul describes our relationship to sin, and he actually says that humanity has been given over to sin or given up to our sinful desires and impurities. 
The idea is that our sins now have control over us. We're enslaved. We're prisoners to our broken desires. All of our choices are ultimately leading to death. But God and Jesus has paid the price to free us from our sins. So our sins no longer have hold on us. Our debts no longer steal away our freedom. We have to remember here, it's not only from our personal sins that we need to be freed. We're in a world dominated by sin. All of us have been sinned against in innumerable ways. Our lives have been shaped by sin, often in completely unintentional ways even. Just think about families. There are ways that my parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents were hurt, um, ways that they then responded to that hurt that can still impact our family. They can still impact me today. This is so often unintentional, but still, we are impacted by someone else's sins and someone else's hurts because of those sins. Christ redeems us even from this, our own sins, the sins against us, the ways we have been consciously and unconsciously shaped by sin. Christ has purchased us out of all of it. We're not slaves to it any longer. We can live and love like Christ without being controlled by these things. So God, through Jesus, ends our sins, removing his wrath. He pays the price of our debt so we can be free. And finally then, he justifies us. Through propitiation and redemption, God is, is really taking things away. He's taking away our debt, taking away our slavery to sin, removing his wrath. Through justification, God is giving us the new life that we need. In justification, because our sins are dealt with, God can now give us a new status. As king, God is judge. And in justification, he and all of his authority declares, we are now righteous. It's not quite like God is saying not guilty. It's more that he sees all that Christ has done, the atonement he's accomplished, and he brings that to bear on us and can say, you are righteous. We're like prisoners being released because all of our crimes have been dealt with by another. This isn't just a single moment, though. God's justification accounts for our whole lives. He says we are righteous and counts us as righteous, even though we will yet sin. But that is because even those sins are already dealt with by Jesus. We have to know, though, that justification is not just an abstract declaration or something sort of theoretical. It is a new status that changes our lives. We're called righteous by God, and that means we can now be in relationship with God. If we go back again into chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, our sins there um, keep us from right relationship with God. In our sins, we turn to sins and not God. All of that relationship's broken. We're far from him. But when we're justified, God declares us righteous. And then he says, come, come to me. We're right with God. There is nothing that stands between us and God anymore. Our sins, God's judgment, that's been accounted for and taken away. And we can finally know, love, and serve God. That's also about then relationship with God's people. God calls us to himself and he calls us to join our new family. We have a new family in the church God isn't actually about making individual righteous people. He's about building a redeemed and justified community, all of us together only by his grace. The church, too, is part of the great gift of this passage. So justification then finally gives us a new future. Justification is the beginning of our journey of life transformation. We've been declared righteous, and now we will, often very slowly, but more and more, live righteously. And with God's help, we can do right, good, and even world-changing things. And at the very last, we will stand before God in all of his glory, and we will be righteous only. 
all of our sins will be gone. There'll be no more evil, no more death. So in justification, God is declaring us righteous, granting us a new status relationship with himself and his church and bringing our life of transformation in him, beginning that. So God's righteousness has been manifested to us. That's his work of propitiation, of redemption, of justification. This is all, frankly, so amazing, it's really hard to grasp and explain and try to make sense of. It's so big. God has done all of this for us. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's true. But it's not yet the gospel that Paul proclaimed and we received. It's only the good news when we recognize all that God has done and then we realize that he's offering it to us by his grace totally free. The gospel is that God has done all of this and gives it to us as a gift. We cannot earn any of this. We cannot work any of it out ourselves. We're not supposed to. It is grace and gift given to us simply as we believe in Jesus, as we hold on to him in faith. A good friend of mine um, struggled for a while with questions of his own faith. It wasn't questions of, do I believe? It was questions of, do I believe enough? Do I have enough faith? Have I really turned fully to God? Am I holding to other things too much? Now, at the time in his life, he was working through some extra anxiety that he was also processing. Um, but a major place it was all coming out was in this question in his life. And he found himself so uncertain. How do I know if I have enough faith to be saved? And he, he worked through his other anxieties in a lot of ways. And we talked, though, and we prayed a lot about this issue, too. In the end, he had to just fight over being able to stop holding on to his faith as something that he was doing for God. He just had to be at a rest in God's help and provision, even in faith. And that is something we all need to be careful with. Our faith is not our work. Faith is not the one thing that we must somehow accomplish or the one thing that we have to conjure up from within ourselves to be able to earn or be worthy of all of God's good work of our salvation. Our faith is simply recognizing all that God offers us and then approaching him with arms open wide and empty. We bring nothing of value or worth. We have nothing to give, but we come to him knowing we will be received and our empty arms will be filled because our God is so gracious. Notice with me as well in verse 22, Paul says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is for all who believe. It's not all who had believed. The point is, Paul's not talking just about a single moment in our past. He's talking about that moment and all the moments of our lives since then. We daily believe. We daily, hourly, moment by moment, turn to God in faith, and we always find him continually giving us these great gifts. We find him continually giving us this gift of salvation. Every moment we are filled anew. Every moment we receive these good and perfect gifts of God. This is the gospel, that we, lost in our sins, subject to judgment, were freely given the death and resurrection of Jesus and all of its benefits that we receive only through faith so that we can live for God and know true life in him. This is the great gift that God is still giving to us. May we all turn to him and receive every day, every moment. Let's pray. God, in face with your gospel, we can only offer our thanks um, and ourselves. Help us to see and know every day the truth of your, your righteousness, your goodness for us. Help us to turn 
and open our arms for you. May we see and know how you fill us with yourself. Um, may we turn out to the world that they can see and know and be filled as well. Amen. On this Trinity Sunday, um, Cyrus and I are going to uh, read to you the Athanasian Creed. Um, it's uh, one of three creeds uh, that we affirm um, as a church, as Anglicans, in uh, union with um, other churches throughout the world, throughout history. Um, and again, it's a creed that uh, very specifically affirms the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it's a bit long, it's a little complicated, so that's why we're reading it to you for you to receive and to, um, to listen to. Um, just a couple notes about it. Um, again, it was used as early as the 6th century. Uh, it's named after Athanasius, who was an early church father who um, taught on and defended the doctrine of the Trinity. He's well known for a book called On the Incarnation, about the Incarnation, but also about um, the Trinity. Um, we do not believe that he actually wrote on um, this creed. It started to be used about 100 years after his death, but it was probably called the Athanasian Creed in honor of him and in honor of, again, the clear teaching he gave um, around how the scriptures teach about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, the creed actually begins and ends with an affirmation that you must believe this to be saved. Um, just know as you hear that, that is not contradicting what Pete just preached on um, from the Gospel of Romans, right? The grace is a, a gift, um, salvation is a gift that we receive. But basically in saying that, the creed is saying, this is what the church believes about the person and character of God, of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit. If you walk outside of these boundaries, you are basically saying, I don't believe what the scriptures teach. I don't believe what um, the um, church has taught and has, has affirmed, and your salvation is in jeopardy. So again, it's not about make sure your doctrine's exactly right or you won't be saved. It's about live within, believe within the boundaries that have been clearly taught by the church. Um, final thing I'll mention is uh, this is the translation that's in our um, prayer book. It's more of an old English archaic um, uh, translation. So man is used instead of humanity. Holy Ghost is used instead of Holy Spirit. So just be ready for that. <laughs> Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals. But one eternal. As also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated. But one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself, 
to be both God and Lord. So we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father. And of the Son. Neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father. Not three fathers. One Son. Not three sons. One Holy Ghost. Not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after other. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation. They also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God, of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds. And man, of the substance of the mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead. And inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation. Descended into dead, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting. And they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This, this is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. We'll continue with our prayers of the people.